Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we get to answer your Bible questions. Yes, there is good news, and here are a few verses that might be helpful to you. Here's what you got to know. God loves you anyway. He's with you anyway. So let's kind of unpack this and look at the tenses just a little bit. Oh, that's a good question. Thank you for joining us. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written, where we get to answer your Bible questions. And I'd like to begin by reminding you where you can submit your questions. Email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. We will be answering questions about angels and holy days and weightlifting among other things. Joining me from It Is Written is Eric Flickinger. Thanks for being here. Good to be here, John. we got some good ones today. I'll pitch the opening question to you. It's from Ernst, and Ernst writes, I understand that after we pass away, we wait to be raised again by Christ. That's right. Correct, yep. But, here we go. How could Moses have been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? In other words, why in the world was Moses not waiting in the grave, but there he was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Really good question because you, Ernst, it appears, have uncovered an apparent inconsistency, a seeming inconsistency. When you find a seeming inconsistency in the Bible, you don't run from it, you run to it, meet it head on, knowing that there is a clear and logical and cogent explanation. And I think you might have it for us, Eric. All right. So, first of all, you are correct, Ernst, about the dead resting in the grave. Let's take a look at it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So, well done. He's got that part down. That's right. All the way through the Bible, you find verses that refer to death as a sleep. Behold, we shall not all sleep, Paul wrote. It's not metaphorical. It's not symbolic. It's very clear and it's consistent all the way through the Bible. All right. But we have this interesting statement. And this is the one that Ernst uh, references. It's over in Matthew chapter 17. In fact, you'll find this same story in Matthew chapter 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. So several different places is the story of the Mount of of, uh, Transfiguration. But we'll take a look at Matthew chapter 17, verse number one. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Well, that's interesting. So it's not just Moses, but it's Elijah. It's Elijah as well. Now we know that Moses died He didn't quite make it to the promised land. He got to see the promised land. He got to gaze upon it. Uh, Side side note here. If I'm going to get to choose the way I die, I'd like to go the way that Moses went. Pretty good, all things considered. Moses climbed a mountain, looked in the promised land, and went to sleep. Amen. That's not bad. No languishing in a hospital bed, no long, drawn-out illness. Climbed a mountain. Went to sleep. Not too bad. It's the way to go out after mountain climbing. After mountain climbing. Yeah. Not too bad. So Moses died. Elijah, it says, was also here. Well, Elijah didn't die. That's right. Elijah, we see back in, uh, let's see, 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah was caught up to heaven in a fiery chariot. 
So we've got Jesus and Moses and Elijah. What we're seeing here on the Mount of Transfiguration is a miniature picture of the second coming of Christ. We have Moses, who represents those who died and will rise again at Christ's second coming, and we have Elijah representing those who are translated. But a little bit more about Moses. Yeah, I'm going to read to you from the book of Jude, that little teeny tiny book right before, immediately before Revelation. It says this in Jude, verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. There was a contention about the body of Moses. It is evident that Moses was resurrected. Now, Elisha, Abraham, Joshua, they were in the grave. They're still there today. Moses, however, was not. He was resurrected and taken to heaven. That's how he was able to come down from heaven and appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. I imagine, I don't know exactly what they talked about there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but I'll, I'll bet Elijah and Moses spoke some encouraging words to Jesus. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it says, and I think it's in the Luke account, that they spoke there about his decease, mm. which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Yeah. A lot of things, surely, but that's the one thing we're told is that they speak about his death. I just imagine... Uh, Elijah saying, you know, you die. There'll be people like me who come to heaven without seeing death. Moses will say, there'll be so many people like me who as a result of your death in Jerusalem will be raised from the dead. Mm. They were there representing the saved who'll be saved without seeing death and those who'll be saved after having seen death. Uh, I bet they shared some encouraging words. I mean, that that death hadn't happened yet. You know, they didn't want Jesus to let them down because what would that mean for them? Oh yeah, can you imagine? So, some encouraging words from them to Jesus, to be sure. All right, we've got another question here. This one from Daniel. And Daniel asks, is weightlifting a sin in order to build the body muscles? For example, your biceps and your triceps. Is weightlifting Hmm. a sin? Hmm. Daniel, let me give you a deeply theological answer. The answer is, I'll flesh out my answer now. It depends. It depends. There's nothing wrong with the activity of of weightlifting any more than there's something wrong with going running. It's good to look after yourself. It's good to be in shape. It's good to preserve your body. And if you want to work out, lift some weights, knock yourself, well, I don't mean actually knock yourself out, but, but go at it. I think about it like this. If you were alive in... Ohio in 1847, you were being raised on a farm and you were lifting weights all day long. You would have been ripped because you'd be out there in the fields working hard, working manual labor. You'd be getting plenty of exercise and your biceps and triceps would have been admirable and enviable. So it's okay to do that. But now let's get to the it depends side. Take, take, Take that for me. So what's your purpose? What's your goal? If your goal in weightlifting is about not being sedentary, being healthy, great, good stuff. If, however, your goal is to win some contest and to look better than everyone else and to attract attention to yourself, that smacks a little bit of vanity. If you're the guy who works out his biceps and then 
rolls up his shirt like this and stands by the girls like that and is hoping to attract admiring glances. Yeah, you know already you've lost the plot. You don't want to do that. Uh, nothing wrong with working out. It's good. Good good to be in shape. Look after your health. I'm glad you're interested in doing that. But remember Solomon, vanity, vanity. He spoke about things being vanity or futile, as a matter of fact. So That's right. It comes down to your motivation, what you're doing about it, what's driving you back here. Good stuff, though, Daniel. I hope things are going well with you there. Uh, question for you from Jay. Jay asks, since the people of Israel were God's chosen people until they rejected Jesus, does that mean that God loved non-Jews less than Jews until that time? All right. Good question. Uh, What about God's chosen people, the Jews, back in Old Testament times? Why did he choose them? Was Was it because they were better than other people? No, in fact, if, if anything, God chose them because they were less blessed, I guess is a good way of saying it, than other people. God didn't love one group more than another. The, the reason that they were chosen was to introduce God to the world, to, to prepare the way for Jesus to come, to paint a picture in the lives of people who didn't know God of what knowing God was like. So they had a job, a purpose in being chosen, not chosen just because they're special, but chosen because they were to tell the world, show the world what a life united with God was supposed to be like. Now, when we look back on the Old Testament, we read the stories of what God's chosen people did and some of the decisions that they made. They weren't always the best decisions and they didn't walk with God all the time. What about, did God love other groups of people less than them? No, absolutely not. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus died for absolutely everybody. There was no preference. In fact, the Bible says God is not a respecter of persons. So he had a chosen group of you. In fact, you read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because... He would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers as the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Nowhere there do you read, God loved you more, God loved somebody else less. Let's not charge God with being a discriminatory God. He loves and has always loved all people equally. All right, here we have, we have a question from Solomon. Do you think you're up to answering a question from Solomon? This could be a challenge. Be a wise question. Yes. So here's what Solomon asks. Solomon says, Matthew 18, 19 says, Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they may ask or that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Does this mean that we can keep any day holy as long as A couple of people agree, if you and I agree that Thursday is now God's holy day, as long as we're in agreement, God's going to go along with what we agree or or not. Well, a lot of people live by that that creed, I think. Uh, What if we decide that a certain form of immorality is now morality? Does that make it okay, Solomon? What if we agree now that stealing is okay, not really a bad thing? Is that okay? What if we decide that Killing is wrong unless, of course, you're killing people that you don't like. No, truth doesn't come down to majority vote. Uh, God's will and word isn't subject to a plebiscite of any kind. 
we read what the Bible says and follow God out of love. And God makes clear to us what his will is. This verse given to us, Matthew, wasn't it 18, 19? Mm-hmm. That was not given so that God said, you can put the truth up to a vote. You can decide what my will is, what my desire is, uh, based on consensus. Uh, he is simply saying that as you pray, if two or three of you pray and you come in agreement before God, then you can be certain that God will hear and answer that prayer. I don't want to un- open another can of worms here because not everything you want, you get. But let's leave that aside. The next verse really clarifies it. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And that's the point. You pray and pray in faith, knowing that God hears you, that God will answer your prayer. But two or three or four or five or a thousand or a million or a nation or a continent full of people deciding to change the law of God back to the holy day? No. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all of thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. We understand the seventh day is the day that comes after the sixth and before the first. Seventh day is Saturday. That's the Sabbath day. According to the Bible, uh, we don't get to change that because we decide that we have a different preference. No, God wrote that in stone. He said, remember it. So the best thing we can do is to remember it. Remember it. That's right. And not forget it, which seems to be rather fashionable. Great stuff. Eric, somebody wants to get a question to us. How do they do it? It's really easy. You just send it to us. You can send it to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. Fantastic. We're looking forward to hearing from you. If we don't know the answer, we will tell you. But first, we'll try our very best to find you a Bible answer for your Bible question. He is Eric Flickinger. I am John Bradshaw. This is Line Upon Line from It Is Written. Back with more in a moment. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God, and here it is, itiswritten.study. Go online to itiswritten.study, and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides. As you get into the Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. We're excited to receive your Bible questions so that we can help you find Bible answers. John, we've got another question here. Yeah, we do. David asks this question, when we die... We remain dead until Jesus returns to earth, at which time all the dead will arise to the sound of angels playing trumpets. Okay. Never thought about it like that exactly, but sure, all right. Sounds good. My question is, if everyone is dead, where do the angels come from? All right. Great question, David. Where do the angels come from if everybody is dead? Here's a common misconception, even within Christianity, which boggles the mind. People, when they die, do not become angels. People don't become angels. Now, if not you, anybody, not, like, not like if you're super special or there's an order of angels. Only if you are a cartoon character. Ah. If you are a cartoon character, then you become an angel. After the anvil falls on your head, after the piano crushes you, then you become an angel and you get a harp and you get to wear a diaper. But if you're not a cartoon character, 
then when you die, as you said, you rest in the grave until Jesus comes back. So what about the angels? Angels are a separate order of created beings. In fact, in Hebrews 2 verse 9, it says that we were made a little lower than the angels. That is, we human beings were made a little lower than the angels. But I also want to draw your attention to uh, Psalm 148. Psalm 148, I'm going to share with you verses 1 through 5, and the last part is especially interesting. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens, uh, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. So angels are created beings. Humans are created beings. We are a little lower than the angels. So when Jesus comes back with all the angels, the righteous dead are resurrected to the sound. How, how was it? Question To the sound of angels playing <laughs> Trumpet. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, sure. I might just have to borrow that sometime. That's a terrific line. All right. Timothy has an interesting question, Eric. Timothy asks, 2 Peter 3, 3, 10 through 13 says that we should live holy lives. What does it mean to live holy lives? Does it mean to be without sin? How is it possible to be holy in this world? Now let's talk about sin. Does God want us to live in sin, practicing known sin? Would that be a yes or would that be a no? That would be a definitive no. God does not want us living in sin, practicing sin. Does God have the ability to keep you from falling into a certain sin, yes or no? He would have to. He would have to. Here's my way of thinking about it. If he didn't, if the devil wanted to lead us into sin, but God couldn't keep us from sin, right? That means the devil is stronger than God is. Sure. I'm uncomfortable with that. Me too. The Bible says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The Bible says in Jude verse 24, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says that whenever there's a temptation, God has the ability to make a way of escape from that temptation. Okay. So God's against sin. The wages of sin is death. So we understand that. I don't think there's any question. Mm. At least there shouldn't be. Where people come unglued is when they realize, I'm far from perfect. Mm. I lost my temper yesterday. I kicked the dog uh, the day uh, day before. Earlier today, I was cranky with my spouse or my parents or my kids or something like that. And so they say, well, I'm not the perfect being yet. Okay, two things. Number one, one is that, as somebody once said, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. You are to grow in the grace of God. The parable that spoke about the seed going into the ground and the plant springing up, first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. You grow. Keep your eyes on Jesus and grow. That's point number one. Number two, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you receive His righteousness. I want to read to you from one of the most profound passages in the entire Bible, and I don't say that lightly, It's uh, Philippians chapter 3. Listen to this. I'm going to start off in verse 8. I could start in verse 1, but for time's sake, we'll leap to verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So, you come to Jesus, you receive His righteousness, you have salvation. You may be incomplete, you may be perfect, but you're looking away from yourself, you're looking to Jesus, and you are growing. You, No matter how you relate to this world, no matter how, mm, how you ever relate to sin, I'll put it that way to keep it safe, you will never be saved because of your righteousness or your good deeds or because of the things that you've done. Your faith is in Jesus. I want to appeal to you. It's right to do right, but salvation comes from being connected to Jesus and allowing Him to work in you, back to Philippians, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. This is holy living. You're growing more and more in the grace of God. I didn't give you a free pass to go sin do your silly thing. No, no, no. You're looking to Jesus and you're growing. You don't want to do that because you love God. So understand this holiness thing. It says in the Bible, be ye holy for I am holy. No question. But any holiness, any goodness, any righteousness that you receive or you possess is that of Christ. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So look to Jesus. This has got to give you hope. You can be the weakest sinner. Receive Jesus' own righteousness now. You can have the worst track record. Receive Jesus and he gives you his righteousness and his holiness. Ah, but I feel still drawn to this and drawn to that. Yeah, but when you were born and you were born, we're going to say perfect, you know, everything where it ought to have been and you couldn't walk and you couldn't feed yourself and you couldn't talk, you grew. So keep on growing. That's what God is asking you to do. Yep. Paul says it very nicely. Philippians 1, 6, you already spoke of Philippians being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That, that question, how is it possible to be holy in this world? By receiving Jesus Christ into your life. That's how. Yeah. All right, here we go with our next question. This one from Gilbert. Was Jesus homeless? Matthew 8.20 says he had no place to lay his head but John 1, 38 and 39 says he took his disciples to where he was staying. Yeah, interesting thought, isn't it? Bottom line, during his ministry, Jesus was basically homeless. He was an itinerant preacher. He went where he went and he was put up by the people who put him up and looked after him. Now, did he have any kind of home base? Capernaum was his hometown. He had a mother, so he might have stayed with his mother from time to time. Back here, Jesus turned and saw them following. What are you looking for? They said, Rabbi, where do you live? He said, this is John 1, 39, come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with them. So he was staying somewhere at that time. He had a home base, but it appears that as he wandered, wandered, traveled for three and a half years during his ministry, he was reliant on the kindness of others. Yep, and, he, and he found a lot of kindness. Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, yep. good friends of his. You can expect that he stayed there from time to time. You know, if I was going to have a house guest, if I was going to have an Airbnb, I wouldn't mind having Jesus stay at my place. He was probably a good house guest. I'll bet he cleaned up before he left. Uh, not a bad thing. So essentially, eh, you might say homeless, but well, I'll bet he had some invitations. Yeah, it wasn't rough living. He yeah. wasn't dumpster diving and sleeping under bridges. You know, we, we, we want to make sure we balance that up. But strictly speaking, it's not like Jesus went back to his weatherboard house with the white picket fence every day after healing people and dealing with Pharisees. 
Question for you, and this is from Edwin. Will there be marriage in the new earth? Well, Edwin, let's go take a look at what the Bible has to say. Matthew 22, verse number 30. In Matthew 22, verse 30, it says, it says for in the resurrection, speaking of, uh, of individuals, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So apparently there is not going to be marriage in heaven, marriage in the new earth. Now, here's where especially a lot of young people get a little bit upset. Yeah. They say, if, if there's not going to be marriage in heaven, not going to be marriage in the new earth, then I sure hope Jesus doesn't come back soon because I want to get married. I want to experience what marriage is like. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. Think about what marriage is like today for many people in the Western world. We'll take the United States, for example. The divorce rate today is about 50%. It's sky high. Give or take 50%. But what about Christians? Yeah, still about 50%. Yep. Not much better than the rest of the world, if any better at all. So marriage today isn't what God originally designed for it to be. So what about the angels in heaven? I haven't read any passages of the Bible where it says that the angels in heaven are getting divorces and, and so forth. No. They, they have an excellent relationship one with another. So if we go to heaven, some people say, well, if, if we were married here on earth, will we still be married in heaven? Again, I think you're missing the point here. You are upgrading your relationships to something even better than what marriage is. Whether you've been married or not, you're getting a better deal. The fact that we can't understand exactly what it's going to be like in heaven shouldn't bother us. Mm. Because what we do know is it's going to be better. Yeah, It's going to be better. Now, you say there's going to be no marriage in heaven, and there are some people who are just beside themselves. They're, oh, wow, I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know if I want to be there. And then there are other people who are saying, Hallelujah. That's a good deal. Um, but let's be very careful. And so you spend 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50, 60, 70 years yep. married to somebody. Do you think you get to heaven and pass them on the streets of gold and say, wow, man, look familiar. Oh, yeah. Se- <laughs> seen them somewhere before. Yeah. Who was that? You get introduced to somebody. Oh, hello, Rosemary. Lovely to meet you. Edgar, do you not remember you were married to me on the earth. Oh, my. No, I guess I... Poof. What was it like? Was I a decent husband? It appears to me that when you get to heaven, the relationships that you established on this earth will be special there. I cannot tell you from inside information here, but it seems commonsensical to assume that a bond that is formed on this earth will still be special in heaven. Exactly what form that takes, I don't know. Do you think you get to heaven and forget your kids? You, you, you think you see them in heaven and you shrug your shoulders and they're no more important to you than anybody else? No, those bonds will persist. Those relationships will go on. We cannot know exactly how. Won't be just like here. But they'll continue. And the people special to you here will be special to you there. Absolutely. What sayest thou? Absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, whatever God has for us in heaven, better than on earth. I know my wife can't believe it. It's better than marriage to you, John? No. So by faith, she accepts that. Hope you can accept it too. It has been good having you here with us. Eric, if someone has a question, just quick, where do they send it? 
lineuponline at iiw.org. lineuponline at iiw.org. That'll get to us, and we'll get back to you. He is Eric Flickinger, and I am John Bradshaw. We'll see you again next time for more of Line Upon Line from It Is Written.